You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we have but one prayer, ultimately, that you'd be glorified in and through all it is that we do. And so, Lord, as we approach your word today, I pray that I would be a, a good teacher, that I would say only those things that are true, and that you would cause to be forgotten anything else that I would say. I pray that we'd be good hearers and good learners, that we might worship you in truth, that you might be glorified through us in Jesus' name. Amen. I turn your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1, if you're not there already. So our main uh, text for today will be verse 3. I want to take a a few minutes before we get into verse 3 to kind of remind you of where we've been. Uh, What's the overall purpose of 1 Peter? We'll look at that and then we'll look very briefly at the salutation. So why was 1 Peter written? If you ask me to give you one verse that was the theme of 1 Peter, it would probably be chapter 4, verse 19. It says this, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So we can say that 1 Peter is written to suffering Christians, especially to persecuted suffering Christians. It's it's encouragement and exhortation to to Christians in that, that state. And we've seen some of the strategies that Peter's used to provide that encouragement in the salutation in the first two verses, if you look at those two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So it reminds us of our election, which reminds us of the sovereignty and goodness of God, reminds us that we reside here as aliens, so we don't belong here. This is not our home. Reminds us that we're scattered in and among unbelievers on a sin-cursed planet. So when you start with that, persecution, suffering, trials ought to be expected. right? But we understand it's all according to the foreknowledge of God, all to the loving sovereignty of God. And so we can live through those things. And we understand also it's for our sanctification. There's a purpose for those things. So that's what we see in the salutation. That leads us to 1 Peter 3. Or First Peter 1, 3, and we'll read to uh, verse 7, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're asked here in verse 3 to bless or to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll see that the focus is on praising God for our inheritance, for, for heaven, for heavenly inheritance, for our ultimate home. Um, appropriate, we just had that song. We're to praise God for what is our ultimate home, the one place where we will ultimately feel at home, the perfect place for us, the new heaven, the new earth. 
But I want to dig into verse 3 a little bit so we make sure we understand some of the truth that's in there. Uh, There's a lot of very high theology just in that first phrase, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we'll start with that. So your translation, you're told to bless God or to praise God. That's probably what you have in front of you. Uh, there, there is no verb in the original language uh, to make that a command. The first word is actually an adjective, uh, eulogetos, it, uh, from you meaning good, and the familiar word logos meaning word. So it starts with an adjective meaning worthy of good words, worthy of praise. So more literally, it would be praiseworthy, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, King James, New King James, New American Standard, ESV, they all have the same, they add the word be in there. So they say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, the NIV has praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holman Christian Standard goes one step further, uh, makes it a verb, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, what should we do with it? Like, how do we understand this? Well, we have to understand that each word in the original manuscripts, each word in the original language is, is inspired of God, is God-breathed. We believe in verbal inspiration. That is, each individual word in the uh, individual manuscripts is there on purpose. It's breathed there by God. So we don't lose the meaning of anything if we can avoid it. All right, so sometimes we consult lots of translations and look and try to make sure that we understand this or we'll do some research. Uh, I, I will sometimes flip to the Young's literal translation. Uh, Young's is... A translation that if you weren't worried about readability at all, you just wanted to do word for word for word, translate the words. In this case, it doesn't do us much good because they actually put the B in there, but they put it in brackets. So for Young's, it is blessed B in, in brackets, and then, then all the rest is the same. But we want to understand each individual word as much as we can. So what is Peter saying? He's saying, praise word the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an applied command, but it's not really there. It's way better than a simple command. Think about it. It says, an adjective, praiseworthy. That makes you think, God, I've got to stop and analyze God. I've got to look at him and see what what is it about him that is praiseworthy. Now, when we contemplate God, he is praiseworthy. Right? Praise and worship flows naturally from contemplation of God's attributes and his acts. Okay? So I hope you see it's, it's better than just a command. It says, think about God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is praiseworthy. Now the, the command is implied. Right? He is praiseworthy, so therefore, praise him, worship him. That's only reasonable. That's the only reasonable response when you think about God. Now, this is a common way of referring to God in the New Testament, and we'll also see it's similar to ways that God's referred to in the Old Testament. For some reason, it seems to be chapter 1, verse 3. I don't know why. It's just, it is. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, then 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, so the lesson is that he is praiseworthy. Now, Peter will give us some specific acts for which we are to praise God. But first, we want to look at how Peter addresses God in the verse. So again, 
the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a formula that's fairly common even in the Old Testament. We see words like, blessed be God most high. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Blessed is the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Okay, Fairly common. But Peter adds something here that's significant. He adds the notion of God as Father. That's what you see in the New Testament. He adds the notion of God as Father. Really rare in the Old Testament. Go back and look in the Old Testament. See, God the Father is not referred to as Father very often at all in the Old Testament. And when he is, he's referred to as the Father, say, of all Israel, or the Father of all creation. It's never that personal, intimate, my Father. We don't see that in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament addition, uh, uh, revelation. God is referred to very often in the New Testament as Father. Jesus referred to him as Father almost all the time. Here in this verse, it's important to understand, Peter is not referring to God the Father as the Father of all mankind. He's not referring to him as the Father of all Israel or the Father of believers, uh, the Father of the recipients of the letter, or the Father of Peter. He's referring to the Father as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's reasons for that, and I don't have to go into the relationship between father and son because Jim's already done that. Okay? He already stole that thunder. He also set me up, I, I don't know if you noticed this, he set me up to preach on the day that we spring forward, right? when like half the people won't show up and the other half are uh, sleeping. Right? So appreciate that. It's always something with that guy. Right? <laughs> the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The relationship between father and son, Jim has done in, in Hebrews chapter 1 already. I'm sure we'll see more of that. I want to just remind you of Hebrews 1.3. He, the son, is the radiance of his, the father's, glory and the exact res- representation of his nature. And in John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the father are one. So the father and the son are one in their divine essence, one in their divine nature. Anything that you can say about the divine nature of God, the father, you can say about the divine nature of the son. All right, and vice versa. Now, there are some things you can say about the Son that you do not say about the Father, such as he has a body. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He died. Uh, you can't say those things about the Father. The Father has no body. But when it comes to the divine nature of the Son, they are one in essence, along with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So all that can be said of the Father is said of the Son, and all that we can know of the Father we know through the Son. Uh, this is from Calvin's commentary on this verse. Quote, as formerly by calling himself the God of Abraham, he designed to mark the difference between him and all fictitious gods. So after he has manifested himself in his own son, his will is not to be known otherwise than in him, in the son. Hence, they who form their ideas of God in his naked majesty, apart from Christ, have an idol instead of the true God, as the case is with the Jews and the Turks. Whosoever then seeks really to know the only true God must regard him as the Father of Christ. For whenever our mind seeks, listen to this part, this is the, the best part. For whenever our mind seeks God, except Christ be thought of, it will wander and be confused until it be wholly lost. Peter meant at the same time to intimate how God is so bountiful and kind towards us, for except Christ stood as the middle person, his goodness could never be really known by us. Right? So Peter reminds us of the the praiseworthy God who is to us and for us as believers. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we know him, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to spend a little time on that that term, the Lord Jesus Christ, those three words that are used together. It's used very often in the New Testament. NESV has it 63 times 
Interestingly, it's not used at all in the Gospels. Those three words together, not used in the Gospels. It's used in every other New Testament book except a few. And in those, other very similar arrangements are used. Like 2 Timothy doesn't have Lord Jesus Christ. It has Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, So they're very similar. Uh, John, John never uses the term at all in any of his writings. Kind of interesting. But he uses, again, very similar very similar words. So it's a common connection. It's so common when we hear Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we think of it as an honorific, a first name, and a last name. Like Mr. Lanny Keller, Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's how we think of it. Don't want to go too far with that. <laughs> but we, there's a lot that we don't want to miss. When we say, we, we just read Lord Jesus Christ and move on, we're missing a huge amount of very high theology. This is from Richard Lenski. He was a Lutheran pastor at the turn of the 19th century. And he wrote this in his commentary. Quote, like Paul, he uses the full liturgical name of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He in whom our whole salvation is bound up. This name is really a concentrated confession. All that the scriptures reveal of our Savior God is crowded into this name. And that's true, as you'll see. So let's look at what's crowded into that name. What are we confessing in this concentrated concentrated confession when we say the Lord Jesus Christ. These three words. Well, Lord is the Greek kurios. You've heard that before. It means a master, one who has absolute ownership, a Lord. Uh, those are, that's how it's translated, a master or a Lord. And he is the Lord, the master, the sovereign ruler of all. So it reveals a couple things. He is the Lord. Right? The opposite of the Lord is the slave. He is the master of us, his slaves. That's one of the things we're confessing. Another is that he is the Lord, the Lord, not a Lord, not a master. He is the Lord, the master. He has ownership over everything. That implies his deity. He is fully God. So there in that one term, Lord, we're confirming our submission to him as slaves and the fact that he is God. Okay? That's what we confess. Now, and why is it important that he has to be fully God? Why is it important for your salvation? To be able to answer this, he, we need an infinite sacrifice, a sacrifice of infinite value. Right? Our sin debt against an infinitely holy God is infinite. And so the only sacrifice that can pay that debt is an infinite sacrifice. He had to be God. He couldn't be merely human or less than human. He had to be God. And so he is. What about Jesus? Well, Jesus is his name. It's his human name. It's just a human name, very common human name at the time. It's the same as the Hebrew Joshua. It's a Greek version of Joshua. Very similar to Hosea and Isaiah. It's a very common name. Uh, in Bible times, kids' names reflected meaning. Uh, they meant something. Now, our names don't generally mean a lot, right? I don't know the meaning of the word Bryce. I think it just means Bryce. I think it's just a name, right? It, I hope that's not right if it means something. Sorry, Joe. But normally, like when I, na when I name my kids, their names didn't mean anything. They were just names that I thought were nice or that meant, you know, that related to an ancestor or something like that. But in Bible times, names were intended to reflect a hoped-for trajectory for the child's life, a predicted or hoped-for trajectory, something they wanted to be true about, about the kid or that was true. Right? 
And so, Jesus, what does it mean? Well, it's from, again, the, the Hebrew, Joshua, Yahweh, Shua. Yahweh, you know what that means. The, it's the name of God, the I Am. Shua means saves. So the name means God saves, or God is salvation. We sang a song this morning, the Lord is my salvation. Uh, that's the name. God is, my, God is salvation. So it was given to Jesus to reflect his mission as the Savior, the human Savior, okay? the one who would save. Now, why is it important that he has to be human? He has to be God. Why is it important he has to be human? He has to represent the fallen human race. Okay? So the sacrifice has to come from the race of humans, and so he is a human. Okay? He's fully man, fully God, fully man, the Savior. Right? So now we see what we're confessing in these names. And then what about the last, Christ? It's not his last name. What is Christ? It means anointed one or Messiah. It's the promised king. He's the Messiah. He is the king. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. One day he will rule over his universe forever and ever and ever with no opposition of any kind. That's what we confess when we say Lord Jesus Christ. Put it together. He's Lord God the Master, fully divine. He's Jesus the Savior, sent from heaven, born of a woman, born to save born to die for the salvation of his people. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the eternal ruler of the universe. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss the pronoun. Don't miss the pronoun, our. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. This is our identity with him. He's ours. He's not just somebody else's Lord or, or King or Savior. He is ours. We have this perfect relationship with us. He exercises his perfect will as our master. He came to save us. He is our savior. He is our Jesus. And he will be our king. We look forward to the day when we live in a visible kingdom with him as our king. Okay. Now when our last uh, or current president was elected, um, I mean president of the United States, and he was elected, there was a saying, there was a, a slogan that some people uh, started using. Not my president. You heard that? Hashtag not my president. Hashtag that's a cool thing the kids do. I know all about it. <laughs> Used to be pound. <laughs> I don't know. Now it's hashtag. Not my president. So this was a way of saying, look, he's not, we don't respect him. We don't respect his authority. We won't acknowledge his authority as president. We won't submit to his authority. Uh, we don't agree with his policies. We won't joyfully or willingly submit. We just, we're, he's not our president. Okay? It's a way of resisting. When Rick Warren refers to the current leader of the Roman Catholic Church as our Pope, we similarly recoil to that, right? We as evangelical Protestant Christians, we would reject any authority of any leadership of the Roman Catholic Church. Right? He's not our Pope. Hashtag. I don't. But when it comes to Christ, right? When it comes to Christ. Yeah, He's our Master. Uh, we're, we're, we jump at the chance to declare that He's our Savior. Yeah, we needed a Savior, and He is that Savior, and He's our King. We look forward to that day when He's our visible King. We we look forward to that. We'd sooner die, and many have. We would sooner die than deny 
the fact that He is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our commitment to Him. That's who we worship. So it says here in verse 3, to praise this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise this God and Father who we know through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why would we do that? Why would we, why would we praise God? That's a, that's a stupid question, right? To ask a bunch of believers, right? Well, it's not because we're being given this indirect command to do this, right? So there, there's some reason for that. Remember who this is written to. People in suffering, people in trial, people who are undergoing persecution. Right? It's a reminder. You have much for which to praise God. And it talks about uh, the acts of God. So let's focus on the acts of God. Let's, let's set aside for the moment the attributes of God that are so praiseworthy. Let's think about the acts of God. We believe in the providence of God. So we might start small and say, well, what do we have to praise God for? We have eyesight. We can see colors. We can hear music. Right? We can enjoy things. We, uh, we like bacon. Right? We enjoy food. We enjoy... And we might go uh, maybe a little higher. We think of people. Right? Our friends and our, our family, our, our spouse. Wonderful blessings. We think of the scriptures. What a blessing to have... Revealed Word of God. He didn't have to give us that. He, he did. But in reality, when you talk about believers, what do we have to praise God for? For the acts of God? We know where we go. We go to the cross, right? That's where we go. We praise Him for the mercy and grace that was shown us at the cross and for the ultimate hope of heaven. That's, that's what we praise God for. Okay? That's what we're drawn to here. Verses 3-5 through five again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, it's undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A lot of stuff there. That's why it's going to take centuries to get through this at like two messages a year. Okay? No joke. So we're, we're reminded of our salvation, of the rescue. That's, that's what we're reminded of here when we're asked to praise God. What are we reminded of? The elements of it here in the verse. His mercy. We were in desperate need of a rescue, and he provided that rescue. He provided our salvation. Regeneration. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive so we could hear the gospel. Uh, the living hope. Uh, hope is a, kind of an unfortunate word that's used in the Bible in the sense that it has a little bit of the wrong meaning to us. It's not a hope in the sense that we have hope. It's a confident expectation. Right? It's that thing which we know will happen. Our living hope, our confident expectation of future blessing. We're reminded of the resurrection of Christ. That's the, that's the fulcrum of history. It's the greatest display of God's power that's ever been. Greater than the creation. It's our guarantee of eternal life. The resurrection of Christ. We're reminded of the inheritance of heaven. Guaranteed by the decree and power of God. Do you see that? It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. We're reminded of faith, the gift of faith. We're reminded of heaven, our, our eternal home. Right? So we're, we're to bless God for our salvation. We're to praise God for our salvation. He's worthy of our praise because of our salvation. 
Now, sometimes those of us who have been saved a while can lose sight of that and take it for granted a little bit. So what I really want to do this morning is remind us of what happened when we talk about our salvation. In order to do that, we have to think about who we are apart from the work of Christ. Who you would be apart from the work of Christ. Okay? Some of you have heard this before. You're going to hear it again. So would you consider yourself to be a good person apart from the work of Christ? Let's examine that. Have you ever taken a breath without acknowledging the giver of life? Have you ever believed something about God that wasn't completely accurate? Have you ever used a reference to God as you know something other than reverence? Use it as an exclamation, or as you would a filth word. Have you done that? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever been angry with somebody? Have you ever looked at someone who's not your spouse with lust? Have you ever stolen anything in your life? Have you ever lied? Have you ever lied? Have you ever wanted something that someone else had that wasn't yours? See, you like me, you're, you're, you're an idolatrous, blaspheming, parent dishonoring, murderous, adulterous, thieving, lying, covetous sinner at heart. That is who you are and that is who I am apart from Christ. And do you know who you sinned against? Have you thought about that? Forget the people. You sinned against God. right? He's, he's holy and perfect. He's eternal and omnipotent. He's beautiful and he's marvelous. And you thumbed your nose at him repeatedly. You defied him. You denied him. Acted like he didn't even exist. He gave you a conscience to warn you. He gave you the creation to convince you. If that doesn't convince you, I don't know what's wrong with you. Well, I do know what's wrong with your mind. He also gave you all the blessings of common grace. Gave you family and food and sunshine and all the things that he's given you. And yet you denied him and defied him. And so we were reasonably, rightly, objects of his wrath. Right? That was the right thing. Our right and proper destiny was eternal, conscious torment in the lake of fire. That was the right thing for him to do to me and to you. That was the right thing. He's perfect, he's powerful, fearsome, infinite, he's loving, he's kind, he's merciful and gracious. We are creatures of dust. We were made from dust. And for us to sin against him, it's unspeakable. It's horrifying. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 puts it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. We were by nature children of wrath. By nature. This was our nature. We're no better than the worst sinner you can imagine. And this is who you were before you came to know Christ. This is who you would be apart from the 
the work of Christ, the regenerating and sanctifying work of Christ on your behalf. So I'm speaking in past tense here because I'm, I'm speaking to believers, but if you are here and you have never put your faith in Christ, this is who you are today. You are an object of wrath. This is what you deserve and is what you will get unless you repent, turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. But we're not left in the state, in that state. We don't have to be. Again, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, a rescue, ready to be revealed in the last time. So if that describes you, if you've repented of your sin and you put your faith in Christ, you've gained the righteousness of Christ's perfect life. You've gained forgiveness for your sins through his death on the cross for your sin. You've gone from being an object of wrath to being an object of love and blessing. You think about the contrast. You went from hell to heaven. Uh, you went from being a slave to sin to being a slave to God. And that's a big contrast. You went from being his enemy to being his child. Right? From wrath to blessing. So we offer him our praise. He's praiseworthy for that great act of our salvation. We offer him our praise. We sing from our hearts to the Lord. Right? We, we pray to him. We read his word. We, we want to be more and more like him. We want to bear his image better and better and better. So I think that's the obvious application. right? It's given us as an implied command in the verse. But I want us to think through for a moment how it would encourage believers who are going through suffering and persecution. So how, how does this work? How does, how does contemplation of our salvation, contemplation of heaven, of our heavenly inheritance in particular, uh, how does that help us in suffering? How does thinking about heaven help us in suffering on earth? Well, duh. Right? That's what does it, Right? That's what makes this place tolerable and meaningful, is the hope of heaven. I don't know about you, right? Well, I kind of do know about a lot of you. If this is all there is, if this is all there is, stop. Just stop, right? I'm not gonna, what? what? I'm not gonna do the hard stuff. Why would, I, why would I go through persecution? Why would I suffer for doing good, as Peter puts it? Right? If this is all there is, just go have fun. Just get out of here. Go have fun. Why would you sit and listen to somebody like me? Right? Go have fun. Live for today. I was really going to try to make sure you, you didn't remember Jim's singing, but I don't think I'm going to be able to avoid it. Because John Lennon would have been right. If there's no heaven... Imagine all the people living for it today. You should, that's what you should do. If you have nothing to anticipate. Right? Joel Osteen would even be right. Wouldn't he? This would be our best life now if we have nothing better to anticipate. But look at verse 6. See, there is a heaven. And look at verse 6. It says in this, and that means in contemplation of your heavenly inheritance and of your salvation. It talks about before. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And Peter's not diminishing what they're going through, what, what they're going to go through. But it is, it's just for a little while. It's just a little while. Look, let's say you suffer for 80 years. 
Let's say you suffer for 100 years. Anybody, anybody over 100? No? So let's use that. Let's say you suffer for 100 years. So what percentage is 100 of eternity? I know it's like math. And so I'm not going into, and look at Jamie Slippy, I'm not going into limits. Just, it's zero, okay? It's zero. It's just a little while. It really is. It's just a little while. It's just a little while. You can do it. You can live through anything so long as you remember the hope of heaven about eternity. So I'll end with this. This is from Calvin's commentary again. Uh, quote, the main object of this epistle is to raise us above the world in order that we may be prepared and encouraged to sustain the spiritual contests of our warfare. For this end, the knowledge of God's benefits avails much. For when their value appears to us, all other things will be deemed worthless, especially when we consider what Christ and his blessings are. For everything without him is but dross. For this reason, he highly extols the wonderful grace of God in Christ. That is, that we may not deem it much to give up the world in order that we may enjoy the invaluable treasure of a future life. And also, that we may not be broken down by present troubles, but patiently endure them, being satisfied with eternal happiness. Let's pray together. Father, we can't imagine not being satisfied with the future happiness of heaven, but there are so many times here on earth when we can let those things, uh, those trials and sufferings that are intended to sanctify us, we can forget that and we can, uh, we can get down in the dumps and we can, we can, uh, we can fail. Uh, we can fail to glorify you as we go through those things. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone here that we'd be reminded of the hope of heaven that would be constant in our minds and that as we go through things, whether they're here or we go off to a mission field in Indonesia or wherever, that uh, whatever we might encounter, we understand that it comes from you and, and we keep in mind the glories of heaven. Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.